everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. Now I do not have Jimmy or Michelle here today but I am joined by my great friend and colleague Dr Lee O'Brien, our Victorian Literature Specialist. Hi Lee. Hello Stephanie, how are you? I'm very well. Um, so you're here today because it is the 300th birthday of a man called Horace Walpole and I suspect that you teach one of his novels very regularly and so I was wondering if we could have a little bit of a chat about Horace Walpole's novel The Castle of Otranto. Mm, I'd love to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you come to The Castle of Otranto? Well um, I I actually inherited it which is a nice gothic trope. Very very <laughs> um, yes. Because when I started teaching Engel 206 which is gothic visions as you know um, the Castle of Otranto and The Monk and Northanger Abbey were the first three novels. I've changed a lot of them subsequently, but I've always kept those novels. So I actually came to it just, just because I had to teach it and I yeah. had to convene, took over convening the unit. And I was just staggered by it. I, I thought it was this extraordinary thing and, and very unexpected. Um, I, I, it, it's sort of all over the place and chaotic and... Um, so that that's how I came to do it. I, I came to do it through teaching because I I knew later Gothic novels and things, but I did not know a lot about eighteenth century Gothic. Mm. So that that was a, it was a wonderful introduction into that for me. Well, this is the book that inaugurates the Gothic. It's the great yeah. first Gothic novel, yes. the one that everybody followed afterwards, and you can see how um, formative. Yes. It is in the history of the Gothic by yes. looking at you know some of the yes. kind of motifs and oh absolutely the, the castle for start the castle yeah. so it's not called after a character it's called after the castle and we've got the the upper um, the, the the public rooms of the castle and the crypts and the passageways yeah. underneath that just stays a part of Gothic novels well it's forever. it's <laughs> it's the kind of in, you know where the, the haunted houses of the yes, Gothic come exactly, from exactly yeah. exactly and we have our favourite character our favourite hysterical. Uh, male anti-hero Manfred. Manfred. Let's talk about Let's Manfred. Let's talk about Manfred. He's a bit nuts. Oh, totally. Yes, totally nuts. yes. The man is under a lot of pressure, so I think we have to cut him some slack. He has got <laughs> weird and wonderful things happening in his house. Yes. And he is yes. in a bit of trouble because mm. he's been a naughty boy. Yes. Well, the opening sequences um, are, are, are truly memorable with poor little sickly Conrad. It, <laughs> you'd expect Conrad, the young heir, to be the hero, but Conrad is sickly and Conrad dies in, 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 in a spectacular fashion. Squished squish by, by helmet. By a gigantic helmet. Not only the helmet, but it's got lots of plumes. Yeah, so it's a flamboyant so helmet. So it's a flamboyant helmet. And squish it squishes, by helmet. it kills. Yeah. Uh, just as he is about to marry Isabella, he's, he's killed. And this sets everything off for Manfred because, of course, Conrad has to marry Isabella because, as Manfred knows, he's the usurper. He's, he doesn't really have the right and proper title to the castle of Otranto. So once that married, he's disturbed to Isabella. Then that, I think you're right. It actually sends Manfred quite mad, <laughs> and and he so he has to find out ways to to um, shore up his um, uh, you know, his right to to the castle and the throne and everything, and it does his head in. It <laughs> really does his head in. He goes insane. <laughs> yeah. There's a, but it's so funny. Yes, it's so funny yes. watching him kind of yes. fulminate around and mm. try and 
figure out ways to shore up his power. Yes. And there's, yes. I love those scenes where the ser- the servants yes. are kind of interjecting, and he's going mental about something. Yes. And the servants keep on asking these well, really prosaic well, they questions. They come in in this. Uh, they have the, the, they come in terrified. Yeah. And, and he suspects once the giant helmet has made its appearance, he suspects that the prophecy is going to be fulfilled, and all these gigantic body parts and <laughs> armaments are going to start appearing, and the the servants come in terrified and there's that very you're right the very funny sequence where he's yeah. trying to get them to tell yeah. <laughs> to tell him what is wrong and 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 they they're so frightened and they really play it for all the drama and they they actually there's a kind of a serious aspect to it because they're challenging his authority he can't yeah. even exert authority over his servants and but they found it in that instance i think a giant leg <laughs> Yeah. And a giant foot in the library, as yeah. you do, because it's full of gigantism. I just yeah. before he, Freud, but we do have some rather large body parts. We do have some rather large body parts. It would be rather alarming to walk into your library and find a gigantic foot sitting there randomly. Yes, and I think my next favourite gigantic thing is when um, Frederick arrived. He has this wonderful panoply of hangers-on, hundreds of. It reminds me a bit of Game of Thrones. They all turn up with their armaments and all the rest of it, and there's this gigantic sabre that <laughs> has to be carried by a hundred men. You know, that, <laughs> that's a pretty big sabre. That, that's a pretty big sabre. So, yeah. yes, so, um, yes, but I, it's... Um, Manfred is... He's endearing um, because he spends most of the novel absolutely hysterical. He, he He's this... He's that wonderful thing about gothic heroes, I think, where they're always anti-heroes. Yeah. Uh, the, the, you do have, I mean, you've got Theodore, who is a romantic hero, but I think um, Manfred is the precursor of all the really wonderful gothic mad heroes, mm. anti-heroes, bad boys. I mean, you, you can get, I've been teaching Wuthering Heights this week, you even get it with Heathcliff. Yeah, It absolutely. sort of merges with, yeah, through gothic and realist modes and fantasy modes, so... He was actually quite important in that way. And I think, too, it's such an odd novel. It, it, mm. it, it predates realism by a long way. So you're not getting those kind of realistically, um, psychologically drawn characters. Mm. But still, I, I was looking at it um, in the last couple of days because I knew we were going to talk about it, and I thought the, the Manfred character is actually quite interesting. He's complicated and his there is a complexity there uh, well i remember you tell you saying in a lecture and i thought this was a really good point that he's very feminized yes because the way because the way he's sort yes. of hysterical and he's yes. blown around and and the way he's represented fits into those kind of standard tropes of what femininity yes. looks like he's not he's yes. not commanding he tries to be he commanding. tries to be he tries mm. to be the mm. you know all powerful mm. owner of the of the estate, but he's mm. not. No. I mean, he's a usurper no. on one mm. on the one hand, so his authority is undermined. Mm. Uh, but also, he has so little control over anything. Yes, yes, it's a, it's a t- it's a typical sense again that Gothic develops so brilliantly that sense of illegitimacy. Yeah, that somebody wants power and they can't have it because there is some kind of fatal flaw. Obviously, Walpole is very influenced by tragedy Shakespearean tragedy and he defends that a lot in the second preface where he actually fesses up well actually I did write this (laughs) people liked it I'm not going to be in trouble I'm going to say this is mine yeah after that wonderful first preface where he lies through his teeth it's such a sustained piece of of, of fraudulence I, I, I love that 
but he he does you can see his indebtedness to Shakespeare yeah in in the second preface and and if you're going to take Gothic back beyond the 18th century well Shakespeare's one well yeah I mean you can see that Macbeth particularly I think Macbeth and you can can see Hamlet and you can see Hamlet for sure here and you can see Richard the third because yeah. we've got the usurper. So the usurper trying to shore up yes. his own power while at the same yes. time undermining it. Yes, yeah. yes. And also um, Henry VIII. I think I think Shakespeare, one of the history plays is Henry VIII. It's not one of the yeah. famous ones. But um, he. so he, when Manfred suddenly, he's trying to think of reasons that he, he can divorce Hippolyta yeah. and he comes up with the fact, well, she is she is related to me in the fourth degree. Or yeah. something. <laughs> Which is up. shades of Catherine of Aragon. Well, yeah. it is, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, so he's deliberately linking it back um, really aggrandizing himself in that sec- second preface, saying he's he's sort of developing the he, he's the he doesn't come right out and say it, but the air of Shakespeare. So he's relating the Gothic, I think quite rightly, to Shakespeare. And uh, and that becomes such a motif that so the first preface to explain to those who who um, haven't yet read the book, the first preface um, positions the book as a found manuscript. Yes. Um, and it uses that kind of framing device of, you know, this is something that we stumbled across and translated and black here it is. Letter, a black yeah. letter volume. A black letter volume, mm. yes. And so that becomes a, a major trope of the Gothic, the idea that yeah. this is like a medieval yeah. document that somebody's yeah. accidentally stumbled upon in a, yeah. in a drawer or something yeah. like that. And even, yeah. you know, going down yeah. to, um, I'm thinking of something like The Turn of the Screw, where it's yeah. a story that's told to somebody. Yes. So that story within a story trope. Yes. You see it in one hides. Yeah. 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 Um, so that becomes a, a kind of major um, trope or, or yeah. convention of the Gothic. Um, but as you say, he's he's in positioning himself as the inheritor of Shakespeare, but he's also in, in positioning himself as the inheritor of the medieval. Yes, yes. He shifts his allegiances dramatically between the two prefaces. Yeah. The first one, he's just a conduit, he's just a translator. He even, I mean, liar, he even promises that he will, if, if people like it enough, I will produce the original manuscript. Yeah. So yes, so but yes, so we were th- we were thinking about this earlier about gothic's um, indebtedness to the medieval. Yeah. Um, and that and and that he's he's using that as as that medieval manuscript literally as a source of yeah. his first gothic novel because he calls it a gothic romance doesn't he, that, he a, gothic a gothic story he calls it a gothic story yes. so right from the beginning yes. he says gothic he, yes yeah. yes so um, yes so medievalism is really powerful and and that quest motif and the knights it's full mm. of knights and all and theodore as the as the um the young hero knight and all the rest of it yeah and you were talking earlier about when we were chatting across on the way, you, you mentioned Strawberry Hill, yeah, and how Walpole actually brought the Gothic castle into his own life in, in terms of actual architectural space. He replicates it in Strawberry Hill. Yeah, so Strawberry Hill's his house, and he he builds a kind of fake medieval castle, yeah. which looks, I mean, it's it's completely over the top and overblown. Yes. If you see, there are some great portraits of it um, that you can look up on the internet quite easily so if you have a look you can see what we're talking about it looks like a cartoon of the medieval yes it does and and that's kind of what he's doing you know he's taking these ideas about the medieval and making them over the top and dramatic yeah see that that's going to take on such importance in the 19th century isn't it in the victorian period with that Valorization of all things Gothic and all things medieval. You get that in Ruskin. Yeah. 
yeah. um, going back to the medieval and arguing against the Greek, the perfection of the Greek. And, and um, Queen Victoria kind of and Albert tyranny. loved kind of yes. dressing up as yes. medieval. So you get the, yeah, part of the Victorian era culture wars are, are the wars between medievalism and Greek, the Greek yeah. inheritance. So, uh, but people don't talk about the fact that it really started in the in the 1760s. There was this oh. group of, of kind of antiquarians who were really interested in kind of recapturing medieval legends and medieval yes. stories and, and yes. saying that they are they are, are true subjects for literature. They're not yes. kind of superstition. And you would know more about this than I do, but I think that whole antiquarian um, scholarly endeavour, yeah. that dates, doesn't it, from about the, from somewhere in the yeah, 17th 1750, century? Yeah, 1750s, 1760s, yes. which is exactly when Walpole's writing. And that was, that was a scholarly endeavour. That was yeah. actually trying to find real history yeah. and do honour to real history, whereas Walpole just takes the sort of mirror reverse of that or what, what the opposite of that and takes it deliberately into the fantasy world. Isn't yeah. that interesting that the yeah. two strands, the antiquarian and the parody of the antiquarian sort of erupt at the same time? Yeah, and often by the same people. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that, that his position right at this kind of interest in reclaiming like medieval ballads and medieval stories, medieval legends. Oh, that's important too, the ballad tradition. The ballad tradition is really important. But then you also get, you get a lot of other fakes as well. You get Mm. um, the Mm. Ossian um, Mm. controversies where, Mm. you know, um, basically a guy goes and says, hey, I found all of these poems by this Scottish bard called Ossian. Look, I have found them and transcribed them. I found them in a cave or something. I can't remember where he says he finds them, but it's as ridiculous as that. And it turns out it's just him writing them. Really? So, yeah. So he's trying to get it authenticity from, from saying yeah. he's, he's found something, which is just what exactly Walpole, what Walpole is does. Doing. So, yeah, he's, he's yeah. very much doing something yeah. that the late 18th century is very interested in kind of claiming that. Claiming. That so it's a version of power mongering, isn't it? It's yeah. Positioning yourself. That's right. Uh, as, in a sense, I, I, I sometimes think this about Walpole. He's a bit of a bit of a usurper in some ways himself yeah. because he's taking on an authority initially that he doesn't actually have and then when he finds that people actually liking what he's writing then he comes out of the woodwork and says well this is me And because he was actually in quite a difficult position wasn't he because he's the son of the Prime Minister He's the son of Robert Walpole, very, very significant political figure. Probably the first Prime Minister of England. And he's the longest serving, I think, as well. Extremely influential. Yes. So and he so he was obviously a fairly um, large father figure for Mm. Walpole. They had a bit of a a difficult relationship. And can't you see that in this book? Well, yes. Problematic fathers. (laughs) Problematic fathers, my God, yes. So I, you, you can see, it, there's, there's so much psychology in it. You, yeah, you, for all its ridiculousness. <laughs> yes. yeah. You have to wait, you know, for Freud to 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 systematise all this later. But mm. the more you read in the 19th century and the 18th century, and Freud read this stuff, mm. and he read the Greek myths as well, obviously, but you can see that he's sort of, his theories are feeding off the literary. I yeah. love that. Yeah. It's a very literary theory, psychoanalysis. Yeah, it is, and I mean, it, it's it's got so much melodrama and camp. Yes, and some of, and, yes, and, and yes, this, yes. It, I always imagine Walpole kind of writing and sniggering at the end of every line because it's just so 
broad and big. It's it's interesting, isn't it? Because he half wants you to take it seriously. Yeah. So that's why he defends the comic relief and says, well, look, you know, it's in Shakespeare, so I can do it Yeah, that's too. right. There's comic relief in everything. Yeah, yeah. so I'm not, I'm not undermining what I'm doing. And yet it is, the tone of it is sometimes hard to get because yeah. it does have that very modern put-down kind of feel to some of the sentences. Yeah. It's pastiche and knowing that it's pastiche. I have a feeling, though, that it's not. Mm. I'm sort of torn in this. I think he's a very self-conscious writer manipulating all these codes. But at some level, I get the impression that he means it's a serious mm. endeavour, yeah. a, a fictional endeavour. Well, I think it, I think you're right. It's always struck me as odd, the tone, because it's so tongue-in-cheek, it's so campy, yes. it's so parodic. I mean, there's such ridiculous things happen in it, oh. like the helmet, oh, the... Just- the, my favourite is the portraits that get up and walk oh, out and walk down the hallway. A Harry Potter touch. Yeah, yes, it's very Harry grandpa. Potter. They're rather grumpy. Yes. <laughs> Father gets out of the portrait early in the novel and wanders down the hallway. And sort of saying, "Wow, I'm free." I free my sort portrait. Of glares at Manfred, walks down the hall and slams the door on him. This is when Manfred is trying to persuade Isabella to marry him. This is when Manfred is getting very bad. Yes. Like being the bad boy, but yes, I I, I think you're right. The 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 walking portraits. J.K. Rowling clearly yeah. knows the castle. Yeah. The, the walking portraits. The um, well, the, the statue of Alfonso starts bleeding from the nose. <laughs> yeah. Drops of blood appear on the nose. So you get these details that have this inherent farcical nature to them, but they're kind of half seriously deployed. Yeah, they are, and I mean. Whenever I've taught this, because I've, I've taught Gothic as well, um, students always say to me, "It's they can't imagine how anyone could have found this scary yes. or yes. Um, threatening or even dark because yes. it's it's got yes. such kind of over-the-top pastiche and camp. Yes. Well, could you say the same thing about A Game of Thrones? Yeah. Because I know some people take that all very seriously and some people, you know... <clears throat> <laughs> Watch it and read it, Neil. Oh, come on. Uh, how and so that there's that there's that unstable kind yeah. of area where if you want and that that desire to be frightened, that desire yeah. to be drawn into a narrative and be genuinely disturbed by it. That 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 I think I for, as far as I know, some of his readers took it as an, a kind of an in-joke yeah. and read it in a very sophisticated way. And I think they were possibly his antiquarian kind of buddies. Because he had a lot of yeah. friends. He yeah. went to Eton, of course, where all, a lot of his friendships and his lasting relationship with the poet Gray, the elegy in the yeah. um, country, country churchyard Gray, yeah. that began at Eton. But there were several other friends that he met at, e- at Eton and then I think, did he go to Cambridge? Or I can't remember which mm-hmm. one. But there was... So he's part of these these male networks and and I you raise a really interesting question of that whole idea of a coterie Mm. readership who would know Walpole and who would know the games that are being played but also at this time because we're coming into the 18th century where we're beginning to get a much broader readership Mm. so it's not simply people in the know literacy rates are rising they 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 start rising in in the 18th century and then exponentially in the 19th century so you start getting an audience that is out beyond that original coterie 
audience. And there's some evidence, I think, that people just loved it. They still took it as a bit jokey, but they had that, what I call the Game of Thrones response. They want to, they want to be terrified. They want to be drawn into this yeah. bizarre and strange and frightening roller coaster world. Yeah, um, and I think this yeah. is something where we as modern readers, we're reading in a different way because the Gothic yes. has shifted so much into yes. all kind of psychological kind yes. of horror. That's and this is, this is yeah. like actual supernatural yes. actual yes. supernatural happenings which we're yes. likely yes. more likely to kind of read in a tongue in cheek way yes it's hard for us isn't it to to inhabit that really we 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 are a secular society and it's yeah. hard for us to inhabit that religious universe that world yeah. comes from and it, I, I find that in the monk as well, because yeah. we actually have the devil, devil walking abroad in, yeah. in the monk. Yeah, the monk okay. is um, a, a gothic novel, for those of you who don't know, um, by Matthew Lewis, which is perhaps even madder than The Castle of Otranto, because oh, yeah. it has pretty yeah. much, you know, everything. And, and, the wandering and, and, Jew, the it, monk, yes, uh, the, the, has, the evil it, monk, it has, the devil. It has incest, incest, it has rape, it has murder of the mother. It, 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 it was actually attacked as um, yeah. pornography. Yeah. And it it does, and and Monk Lewis Byron, for those who know um, their romantics, Byron was part of Monk Lewis's circle. I uh, I think he probably knew Walpole as well, but so they're I think all... Walpole's too early for Is he Byron. too early? Yeah, right. God, am I taking my history from Georgette Higher? <laughs> but I, um, that, I don't anyway. know if they ever met, but yeah. Walpole was much older than Byron. So, so, a different he, generation. so he can't. So yeah. he can't have. But so Monk Lewis. New Byron, Byron. yeah. So mm. that because I'm I'm just thinking of the Byronic hero, mm. uh, because I think what you can characterize um, Manfred as is an early version of the Byronic hero, mm. but they're all part of that same upper class coterie, aren't they? Mm. And those those networks of friends and readers. And it, it, it develops all the way through into um, late 19th century with Wilde's mm. readership. That kind of coded reading and certain in-crowds read it in, in some ways and others read it you know, in completely differently. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that whole... It's, it's tracking that pattern of the gradual um, widening of, a, of the base of, of, of an engaged and intelligent readership. Base. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the the reason why I love 18th century literature is because it's, to me, really funny. Yes. Um, you know, something like The Castle of Otranto, I think, is intentionally funny in certain places, yeah. even though it has a kind of serious um, undertone to it. But a lot of the Gothic of the late 18th century is hilarious because it's, it's yes. very much working with these over-the-top tropes. I mean, I remember reading yeah. a Gothic novel in which yeah. um, I actually put a... A post-it note on every page where a, a woman fainted, and <laughs> I ended up a forest. Of I, I ended up with a forest of them because yeah. there were so many faintings, but yes. yeah. which which to us strikes us as you know absurd and ridiculous. But it was we, it was thrilling to a reader of the time. We should get we we should mention the date. This is 1764. Yeah. So this is predating by a long way the French Revolution. Yeah. So by the time we get to Monk Lewis, I forget the date. 1799, the I think. Uh, 1797 is it is it it's after the french revolution yeah. so yeah. that that sense of really catastrophic social change it's interesting that the castle of otranto is predating that yeah that upheaval it's before because 
the French Revolution factors into Romanticism in all yeah. kinds of ways. And, and the French Revolution was tied to the Gothic in really interesting yeah, ways. Yeah, so, so we have to wait. Well, 1764, so we're waiting 20 years or more. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, until that revolutionary impetus starts to matter. Yeah, and I mean, you can kind of see how the Gothic changes from something like the Castle of Otranto to the kind of 1790s Gothic that is kind of more yes. recognisable from things like Austen. Yes. Um, because here the Gothic is associated with um, Mediterranean climates. Yes. And so the Gothic yes. is always about yeah. Spain or yes. about Italy yes. or about, you know, those, you know, wild, uninhibited people yeah, who live far away. They do things differently over there. Yeah, they do yes. things differently. It's yes. very warm. It's yes. the Catholic. Who yes. knows what's going on over there? Oh, yes. Really. Um, dodgy people. Dodgy people. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So Not nice and clean and upstanding. No, like not like... British. Yeah, exactly. So the British are Protestant. Uh, represented as these button-down kind of Protestant, rational, yeah, normal, normal yes. people. <laughs> Whereas all of this kind of stuff is probably yeah. going on in yes. in the Mediterranean yes. where it's warm. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Overheated and therefore they eventually have a revolution which we we yeah. avoid. Exactly. So you can Britain. see how they're like yeah. that it's yeah. it's kind of safe because it's away. Yes. It's both in the medieval past. Yes. And it's also somewhere so else. It's safe in terms of the time setting, but yeah. it's also safe geographically. So exactly. you can you can start actually domesticating all these strange impulses without appearing to do so. I I think that's a really interesting point. But can... See, I teach... I start the Gothic unit with The Castle of Otranto. So it's the first Gothic novel. And I, I think it's important... As I say, I think the tone of it is very unstable. But we've talked about this before. It's interesting. So it's the first of a genre, but it's actually a parody of itself. Yeah. And I, I can't think of another genre that begins with parodying everything about it, the castle, the mad male, the, the, the submissive women, the fainting, because Hippolyta faints every five minutes. Yeah, oh, yeah. You know, he's, he's just desperate to please um, Manfred all the so time. So is Matilda. And, and Matilda. Mm. And Matilda forgives her father for stabbing her to death, you know, yeah. really. Oh, it's okay, Daddy. <laughs> you accidentally stabbed me to death, but that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got all those elements there, but the, we, it's, it's, it's parody as well. It, yeah. It, it's, it's, I find that interesting. But what what I find, I can't accommodate in my in, two, in 206 because we go from Castle of Otranto to the Monk and then Northanger Abbey mm-hmm. and Northanger Abbey is satirising the female Gothic mm-hmm. and what I really want to do somehow is include the female Gothic mm. on the Gothic unit. I'd love to teach the mysteries of Udolfo, <laughs> but well, how many pages is it? It, it's, it is it, a long it, novel. It, it's a long novel and they'd have to start no, they couldn't. That that's what is that? What what's the date of the? Ah, um, uh, the mysteries of Udolpho, I think, is seventeen ninety four. So that's yeah. contemporaneous with the monk. So yes. it's a long time. So can you can you just talk contextualize female Gothic a little bit in yeah. relationship to the Castle of Otranto? Yeah. So the Castle of Otranto gave rise to a whole kind of craze for Gothic by both male writers and female writers. You start to get people like. Clara Reeve, um, etc., writing um, similarly kind of medieval set Gothic. Right. But the person who really is kind of synonymous with this with the female Gothic is Anne Radcliffe, Anne Radcliffe. who wrote The Mysteries of Udolpho, which is a bit further down the track. But she starts writing in the 1780s. Right. So the 1780s, I think, is when you kind of get that 
that rise in the female gothic. The female gothic is a little bit different to right. something like a tranto. Um, the most obvious kind of manifestation of the difference, and the one that people always talk about, is that uh, Radcliffe uses explained supernatural. Right. And by that I mean in the cast of a tranto, supernatural events car- happen. And they're supernatural events. And they do in the monk as well. And they do in yeah. the monk as well. But in Anne Radcliffe, the supernatural elements or the supernatural events are always explained right. subsequently. Right. So the noise that you heard is never, you know, a, a ghost, a goblin you know, or, a ghost or, or yeah. knocking at the door or yeah. whatever. It's or always a giant statue. Yeah, a giant statue or a portrait walking down the hallway yeah. saying hello. Yeah. Um, it's always explained right. by some kind of rational means. Right. And that doesn't mean that it's a kind of parody or um, it's a it's a way of making fun of the gothic in the way that kind of Jane Austen does. I think the people misread Northanger Abbey as saying that Jane Austen hated the gothic. I don't think that was the case. But she kind of deflates those kind of supernatural kind of tropes, I suppose. Well, her political agenda is so different. She's she, so she's different, saying, yeah. yeah. Real yeah. life is dangerous enough, never mind. Nev- yeah, exactly. Know, walking statues and, and, and rogue yeah. elements. Um, the real world is a dangerous place. Is that what female gothic is doing? No, not really. Um, it, it's kind of doing that in some ways. Uh, it is doing that. I should say it is doing that in some ways because it's drawing attention to the kind of dangers of the patriarchy and the kind of the, the patriarchal father is a yes. figure of horror in the right. female gothic. Right. Um, but it's also played straight in some ways, um, that idea of terror, and it's mm. never kind of deflated in the way that, that Austen Austin uses The it. laundry list. Yeah, the laundry yeah. list and yeah. that. It yeah. never yeah. becomes quite that. Yeah. But um, she does draw attention to the, the terrible position, I, I think, that um, women are in, where they're constantly under threat, they're constantly, um, you know besieged by men there's a lot of very very dangerous but also very sexy men in in um Anne Radcliffe so that's where you get the kind of more development of the Byronic hero okay right they're less in they're less they're more genuinely threatening than Manfred so Manfred is a kind of you know mm. he's he wants to be really scary mm. but he's kind of all over the place yeah and when he kills he kills by accident he kills by accident so <laughs> it's he's not the kind of figure that no. that somebody in in a that a kind of gothic that's that's villain. an important point I think he's Anne fundamentally Radcliffe. weak yeah I, I mean it's, I think true. it's I think it's hard to kind of take him seriously yeah. as a as yeah. a like a really yes. menacing gothic figure yes. but in in yes. Anne Radcliffe yeah. women are constantly kind of besieged by men genuinely mostly. yeah dangerous males men. yeah and part of the shift too as I understand it is the movement towards the gothic heroine yes. in, in female gothic Yes, because it seems to me that in the castle of Otranto and the monk really it's the males who are the focus mm. there, there are female characters but it's they they are not the ones who drive the narrative they're always passive yes and they're always and either one thing they're either they're instrumental and yeah they're, yeah they're, they're part they're of the plot morally pure yeah, and virtuous yeah. or are they are seductress yes yes whores, yeah, the whore, that's yeah. right it, that's what Austen does in Northanger Abbey because mm. it's Catherine Morland's story, yes, isn't it? Yes, exactly. And so that's what you get in the female gothic, yes, a centering of the woman's women. experience. Yeah, And that has all kinds of um, implications further down the track in the 19th century with the importance of women's experience. Yeah. So it's still very conventional and stereotype, would you say, in female gothic, mm. but it's still leaning towards that 
making much more complex female characters and ones with agency yeah they do have agency and i mean and you know sometimes that agency will be undermined or taken away by the end if if the gothic is is you know going to end tragically then that agency is often um take or, or kind of um withdrawn but um they because they're the center of the narrative they have a kind of much more um of a presence. I'm, I'm thinking of something like this isn't a very well known book, but I've done quite a bit of work on Mary Robinson's first novel. Mary Robinson was a um, a novelist in the 1790s, fascinating figure in and of her, uh, uh, you know, as a as a, as a yeah. person. Um, but her first novel was a Gothic novel called Vicenza. It's got um, it's got a lot of elements that are similar to Otranto. So again, she sets it in the medieval. It's right. set in um, Spain. Um, she says she uses that kind of found manuscript thing. She says, oh, you know, this is deposited in um, a university library, I think she says, and we just accidentally stumbled upon it and I've, you know, translated it and here you go. Um, but the, the heroine um, is a very active kind of woman and she actually falls in love with the hero immediately and kind of pursues him in a way that is potentially a little bit problematic. In that she kind of out of ex- sexual desire, uh, she she has sexual oh. desires and she expresses them. Oh, that's interesting. But yeah. oops, it's her brother. Oh, complications. Yeah, so yes. so complications. Yes. So nice incest plot. Um, and the <laughs> you know because eighteenth century, if they loved anything, they loved good they incest loved novel. Incest. Loved oh, incest. Well, yeah. How very, <laughs> very disturbing. Yeah. But see, what happens in that book is that um, the reason that she doesn't know her brother is her brother is because her mother has had um, an extra kind of marital liaison, and be- and the stain of that, the stain of that her kind of fallenness, means that uh, nothing good can ever happen right. to even her her daughter. Oh, right. So the stain of female oh, transgression, the sins of the, mothers, the, sins of the oh, mother right. are visited on the daughter. Okay. okay. And there's no way for the daughter to get out of that. Uh, okay. So that's a very interesting engagement yeah. with the passivity or, or the entrapment of the Gothic heroine in male Gothic yeah. fiction. Mm. So that's really interesting. And she's I, such a she's yeah. Elvira, who is the main character, is such a interesting, clever heroine and her and her brother lover <laughs> are presented as having this kind of beautiful um, egalitarian relationship yeah. and they're going to do good to yeah. the community around them because they're so kind of progressive and egalitarian right. Right. until at the last moment of course yeah. it's discovered that they're brother and sister and she just up and dies immediately oh, because what? that's what you do oh he's my brother I'm dead you know <laughs> um, so so her agency is again a kind of cut away because she can't actually be accommodated see that's interesting because that seems to me a, such a fascinating um perversion uh, a per- oh, no not a perversion a perverse account of the romance plot mm. which is I mean it's everywhere it's not only in gothic it's in realist fiction but I I often I I think the romance plot is fascinating in the mm. castle of Otranto because it, Theodore rather lovely Theodore is um, he falls in love with Matilda who is of course killed by her father mm. And then in the last paragraph of The Castle of Otranto, Theodore and Isabella eventually get together. So Theodore... But he's, she loves he's, him. 
Yes, but nice he love loved, yeah. Yes, he's in love with, with the dead Matilda. Matilda. Yeah. And they decide to marry and stay together so that they can explore their melancholy. <laughs> and, and I, let's I be thought, glum I, together. Yes, I thought, yes, let's just be miserable for the rest of our lives, you know. Let's talk <laughs> about our miserable morning, life morning at the dead Matilda. But that's an interesting undermining of the romance yeah. plot, isn't it? Because yeah. you'd think of the in Georgette Higher and, yeah. and those that, that man and those perfect manifestations of the romance plot. It's always happy. Yeah, it, you, it, it's and it, and Austin too. It's, yeah. it's the rescue into love. And you and once you, are you fall in love yeah. with the right person. God's in his heaven and everything's right with the world. Exactly. And you know as a reader, yes. you have absolute confidence yes. that this is yes. going to be a happy But that match. doesn't happen in the Gothic, no. does it? No. It, it? doesn't, And it doesn't happen in the Castle of Atranta. The very first Gothic mm. is rendering problematic the, the, the power, the ideology of the romance plot. And, and how it acts as a resolution. Because what you find in, in a lot of realist fictions is that the romance plot is involved in getting the money and the property in the right hands. Mm. So you find realism is engaging with that typical obsession of, of, of the Gothic. You know, where does the money, who's, who, who's, who's got the money? Where does the yeah. property and stuff end up? Um, just it's, it's very prosaic in that way. Yeah, yes it's it about is. Who well, owns money yes. and who is the right person to own it's the money? It's very political mm. and potentially very conservative mm. because often, as it does here, um, we don't have a change in, in um, uh, uh, um, pro- property and power doesn't stay with the usurper yeah. and his offspring. It goes back to where it should go. The, blood. The, the, yeah, blood. Yeah. The blood wins out. Alfonso. Yeah. And... <laughs> Is it the stat? It's the statue of Alfonso who, who finally comes alive at, at the end, <laughs> as if he's to say, "Oh, for God's sake, we're going to stop all this nonsense." Yeah, <laughs> and he, he comes alive, and and the castle of Otranto is is destroyed, destroyed, and he goes up the stairway to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't it make a hilarious movie? This massive statue coming to life and going, "Oh, come on, I'm going to sort this Just out." Just a fit of peak, you know. Yeah. I'm going to sort this. Yeah, you idiot you know, humans. <laughs> but it comes to life, and you know. But and and what what the supernatural does in the castle of Otranto, and I and I think it's the case in the monk too, is that the supernatural is is it it, it finally is a god given power. It it's mm. relates in the, in Otranto. It's, it's related to God rather mm. than the devil, yeah. as it is in the monk. God's remarkably strangely absent in the monk. But God is but very interested God in, in property in deals. In property, <laughs> yes. God is a real estate. Yeah, that's right. He, he, but he wants he wants he wants the property apparently and, and the lineage to stay yeah. where it should be. And yeah. that's what you get in the Castle of Atranto. He was after all, you know, the son of, of, of a prime minister, I guess. It's I don't know. Is family. there a mm, and and all his all his social privilege comes from the ownership of property, so I guess it's not surprising that Horace Walpole is not is is going to write a novel that fundamentally shores up mm. the power and privilege of the ruling class, the existing mm. the aristocracy, the Protestant they were Protestant at that time um, aristocracy, not yeah. not these overheated European mm-hmm. Catholics. Catholics, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that kind of changes with the female Gothic, depending on who's writing it. So Radcliffe can be quite conservative, but then there's other... um, She can be conservative and she can be 
radical in certain ways, it's complex. But there are other female Gothic writers who are much more kind of um, using the Gothic in order to critique. And um, to push And to push it, and to push it yes. boundaries. You know, yes. Mary Wollstonecraft uses the Gothic for those kinds right, of reasons. Right. Um, Charlotte Smith uses a Gothic for those kinds oh, of reasons. And and certainly Mary Robinson does to kind of push at um, existing structures and also to highlight as well, especially as I said before, the role of women within yes. these structures. Because yes. the family in Gothic, and this is the case since from Otranto down to today, yeah. is a diseased, yes. dysfunctional it's space. It's a corrupt yeah. institution. The familial is a source of problems one way or another. Yeah, it? it's the family that's going to be the, the cause of the problems for the heroine. And often the mm. you know, the heroine will often find out that the gothic um, villain is her father or yeah. you know, related to her in some way. So that sense, it, it's, it's interesting in the 19th century because you get the family pushed so relentlessly. But in all the fictions, the family is shown as, as the site of the most appalling conflicts until mm-hmm. they're resolved one way or another by, by the way, the plot resolutions. But it's interesting that you say that there's that. Not all um, female Gothic writers are have radical political mm. tendencies. Some are conservative. And that's the case with new woman fiction, as yeah. I am finding, to yeah. my horror. You know, I just <laughs> blithely assumed that all new woman novelists would be politically radical, and they're not. Yeah. And at the end of the 19th century, they get aligned with some really nasty um, social um, movement, eugenics, for example, and moral purity. And it's, it's just... it's it's really strange with the gothic that 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 is still invoking that vastly different political manifestations Mm. of itself yeah uh, the conservative or the genuinely radical yeah and and often you can kind of see those impulses played out in the same book you know that's so true i think even in a chanto because it's, it's it's what the gothic did was sort of butt up against the kind of early 18th century kind of ideal of like the classical kind of um neoclassicism of the early 18th century right right okay so it was all about the gothic writers who were you know all the antiquarian kind of coterie that Walpole hung out with they were kind of the rebels against the kind of neoclassic forms of the early 18th century yeah order you know symmetry symmetry rationality of people like pope most um, obviously um and so people were writing gothic as a kind of rebellion against that um, veneration for classical forms and saying, okay, we're gonna we're gonna right. get on this bandwagon of like unruly yeah. medieval stuff that's yeah. you know based on superstition. It's based on you know Catholic people being crazy, um, it's, and it's based yeah. on excess rather excess. than order. Exactly. See that that's interesting because it makes the Gothic into a kind of proto romanticism, doesn't it? Yeah. Because well, romanticism yeah. is, is exactly the same that. thing. It, yeah. It's that revolt against neoclassicism, the rhyming couplet. Poetry being to dump to dump to dump, all very you know formal yeah, exactly. in what it's doing, and then you get the lyrical ballads, and wow, you know the whole idea of poetry is is blown apart, and and the mm. the language of poetry, the meters, and all that kind of stuff, and even the subject. Yes, yeah. yes, oh, yeah. very much so. Yes, so that's interesting. Where does your so you're an eighteenth century person? Where does the cult of sensibility fit with all this? Um, the cult of sensibility was kind of developing as this all happened. Um, so the cult of sensibility is um, all about um, one's kind of ability to be moved 
by sympathetic engagements with the world. Right. And so that was very much developing alongside the Gothic. So and was Yeah, right. and was engaged in the Gothic. And that's why people responded to the Gothic. Right. So it's a matter of feeling. It's that, a matter of feeling. Knowing the world through feeling. So the cult, the, the gentleman caught up in the cult of sensibility yeah. could manifest their male humanity yeah. through the depths of their feelings. Yeah. And that had been a female, a feminine domain, hadn't it? Yeah, that's right. Then. Women were yeah. the emotional ones, men were the, the cold, stern, rational, rational yeah. you know, smart, ne- not, never carried away. You know, yeah. by, by overwhelmed by their emotions as silly women um, habitually are. And you can see that so, in the Trento because Manfred yes. is always at prey yes. of his emotions. Yes, and there's some some of the humour in the novel comes when Manfred's better nature threatens to derail yeah. his ambitions. He's going <laughs> to do something very bad, yeah, yes, but then he, yes. has, he, almost, he has a feeling. He almost falls in love with his wife again at one point, yeah. which would be devastating yeah. because that would stuff up all his dynastic ambitions of marrying Isabella. And he, and and he's always, he just has to stop himself. But it's always because she's so good. Mm. He's like, oh, you know, if only she was worse... Yes. Um, and she wasn't as virtuous. I, I, if I can read my handwriting, this is a quote. He even felt um, some um, that he some sympathy to put to some disposition to pardon one. This is Theodore, who had been guilty of no crime, <laughs> because at this point he wants to. He, he's, he's threatening to cut Theodore's head off. Yeah. Because he said he smells a rat with Theodore. Theodore's pretending to be a peasant. Yeah. And it's cleared all and sundry that the, the gorgeous-looking Theodore is not just a peasant. Yeah, he, he speaks. So Manfred's taking him out into the courtyard and it's about to chop his head off, but a moment of sympathy with him because he's very brave, Theodore. Theodore's like Theodore. Theodore is brave and and um and so Manfred has this moment where he's he's actually gonna do justice to him and he has to overwhelm that with these bad feelings. So I, I think it's interesting how the Gothic I don't know whether intentionally or not, is rendering more complex the, the cult of sensibility. Yes. Because I, my understanding of the cult of sensibility is that it, emotion is seen as a good thing. It, it's emotion as, as sort of colonised into the good things about being human, not the kind of emotion that Manfred represents, which is this chaotic, all-over-the-place impulse well, it starts. Right, well, it starts wrong? off that way. I mean, it starts off as a kind of um, a way of like coming into contact or or emotion or sympathetic engagement with your fellow man. Right. Um, so it's got which that is, ethical. Yeah, it's got an ethical dimension, and yeah. it's also you know your ability to feel is a marker of um, of of what a, a good person you are. Ah, like in in something like you know in Sense and Sensibility, you know, Marianne says you know he's right. he's adult because he can't right. feel. And but, it's, so it's class inflected too. Yeah, but later yeah, on, right. there becomes like later towards the end of the 18th century, when again with the rise of the French Revolution, there's a lot of panic about excessive sensibility, right. and when you lose control right. of your ability to to put a rein on the your emotions. emotions. So Mary Wollstonecraft yeah. was very very worried about excessive okay. sensibility, especially right. exce- excessive sensibility is a trap for women. Yes. Mm. Oh, it, yes, that's mm. right. Because it's just keeping them tied back into the emotion cage, isn't it? Yeah, well, especially since she, she talks about um, women in very violent and awful marriages who are too 
um, prey to their emotions to kind of manage that. Mm-hmm. So they become dependent on men who treat them very, very badly oh, right, because okay. they've been taught mm-hmm. that that's what you do as a woman is you feel yes. deeply and yes. you engage and yes. you, you put all your eggs in that basket. Yes. And that's where you get like women like, you know, the novel I was talking about before, um, The Chancer, Elvira dies the second for no reason. She's yeah. not sick. She right. just dies of heartbreak. Right. The reason that she, the, the second she finds right. out that she's not going to get married to the, the man she loves, like mm. women are absolutely prey to their emotions mm. and they can kill them. And that becomes very dangerously elaborated against women in the 19th century. Yeah. Because women, you know, the angel in the house, the passive, perfectly, the perfect creature of perfect feelings. Mm. Um, remember in... Um, a room of one's own. Yeah. Um, Virginia Woolf talks about throwing, beating the angel in, in the, the house, house to death yeah. with the ink pot yes. of her writing. She ha- still in the 1920s. She's talking about that passive, emotion-ridden. Well, it's still the way we think about women, isn't it? Oh, you know, yeah. that that women yeah. are more emotional and more kind of yes. and like it sometimes right. it's sometimes yeah. represented in a in a in a positive way, I suppose, because it's mm. represented as women as being mm. more compassionate, more yes. egalitarian, yes. etc. Yes. But it's just another. It's a really old discourse of, of um, women being absolutely um, associated with the emotional, while men are associated. And it's with a the discourse rational. of inferiority. Yeah, when, exactly. it, when it comes right down to it. Yeah, the women yeah. aren't capable yeah. of being intellectual no. because no. Um, they are at prey to their emotions. It was in the discourse about Hillary Clinton. Mm. How can we yes. trust a woman to not How accidentally blow up the world yes. because she might yes. get hormonal one day? Yes, that's right. Mm. Whereas men, you can trust them absolutely not yeah. to have a tantrum and press the red... Is it a red button? Oh, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, Manfred, he would absolutely press the red oh, button. He'd press the button. He, would, he would press the red button five times a day. Do we have Manfred in the White House, we ask ourselves? I think we do. <laughs> If only we knew if Manfred was orange or not. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. So um, I, I, I think. So, what are we going to say as, as what we think the significance of the Castle of the Transo is? If we were going to persuade people to read this really strange yeah. novel, I mean, it, it looks. My students always say, you know, why why isn't the dialogue separated out? It look, yeah. it's just this slew of of typescript across the pages yeah. and, and one incident melds into another yeah. and it's nothing like a modern novel yeah. it's nothing like the gothic novels that we yeah. grow, know but it grow is, in a way. to love but in I the always, 19th century so yeah. what, what, what would we say to people? Well first of all I always say to people who are tackling an 18th century novel for the first time is don't expect this to be a modern novel yeah. Yeah. Um, because I think people go into 18th century novels looking for 19th century novels and then they get disappointed because it's not it's not, it's not realist same. it's not mm-hmm. it doesn't do the things that 19th century novels mm-hmm. do mm-hmm. so just put aside those expectations mm-hmm. um, I think that it's important because it is the first gothic novel it does inaugurate the entire genre yes it is a huge and immensely influential genre the things yes. that came that come out of gothic you yeah. know horror thrillers yes. crime yes. police procedurals you know all, all the big... The fantasy the big, the, genre. Yeah, the fantasy yeah, genre. Yeah, yeah. All the genres that we kind of... It comes out of that. ...like today, almost all, um, come out of this mm. book. 
And you can see. And you've got detective stories. Detective fiction, yeah, that's right. They're always looking for the truth in the Gothic. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so and the pursuit of or the unravelling of the yeah, history. Of the plot. Of so the, history. the detective yeah. comes out of, yeah. of, of um, yeah. the Castle of Otranto. Yeah. I think it's important for all of those reasons to understand where the thing come, the, the genre came from. Yeah, yes. But also, even though it seems so odd and different, it's not actually that odd and different. I mean, there's murders. Yeah. There's um, mystery, yeah. there's ambition, there's yeah. very ambitious, especially yeah. ambitious men. Yes. Um, there's arguments about money yeah. and property, yeah. which, you know, yeah. still happening there's today. Love. There's love. There's love and People romance. falling in love. Yeah, love and romance. Yeah. There's tragedy, yeah. you know, yeah. perennial favourite from ancient Greece mm-hmm. to today. Um, and also, I think that idea of um, the dysfunctional family yeah. and yeah. the, dis- yeah. you know, and yeah. the, the fear. Yeah. That sort of surrounds the kind of very powerful male yeah. is is still pervasive, yeah. Yeah. and also it's it's kind of the every like I said every haunted house story. Yeah, yeah. You know yeah. that idea of the yeah. of the castle, the scary. Yes, and the subterranean passages. The subterranean such a passages. Kind of yeah. Spatial representation of the id, is it? Or whatever. Yeah, that's the, right. The, the conscious, exactly. the, the public spaces, but all this stuff unfolding. Yeah, and uh, the idea that you know which is kind of a, a perennial part of the Gothic, that these big houses, these kind of powerful people, yes. are actually really, really stuffed up behind it. Yes. You know, that, that not these are aristocrats, these are powerful people, and yet they've all got their kind of own private rivalries and vengeances. They're, and, in, they're vile. They're vile, they're, yes. yeah. So the Gothic allows you to see that. Yeah, and allows you to kind of enter into that and that's fun yes you know we like yes. reading about like dysfunctional yeah you know yeah. people that are fighting each other in this kind of powerful yeah. way and they might end up dead at the end but that's and, kind of fun too and <laughs> if you're suffering through some nasty family traumas i mean it is nice that the gothic is telling you well you know that that's just families you know that's what human beings do in yeah. close proximity it's always power struggles it's not always you know daisies and roses and little yeah. lambs and everything human life is actually hard and there's and there's darkness in human and there's life darkness. and there's darkness yes. in humankind and there's darkness in the domestic yeah but see that's where we get jane austen elaborating that that the true yeah. Um, darkness is, is is in ordinary homes. Yes, yeah. the, the power operates. Yes, I mean that's yeah. what the Gothic is about. Is about power, right? Yeah. Um. Yeah. So you know how it's negotiated yeah. and used by people yeah. against each other. Yes, power agency, a sense. How do you? How do you? How do you make a? How do you make a life? You know how? Yeah. How? How do you? How do you live with a degree of honor? How do you how do you get what you want without hurting other people? Um, how, you know, it, it it's all about those processes of being a human being in lots of structures that are impinging on you that you can't control, mm-hmm. ideological structures, but also you know actual physical spaces that you that you, you get caught up in. So it's it's actually got that human aspect to it. And I guess you could say that comes from the Castle of Otranto. With mm. I don't it's know all there. that. With it, it's there, but it's still a parody of it. it is, yeah. I still come yeah, back yeah. to it's that still, instability still, of it. Well, what I think it is is it's still kind of embryonic. It's, it's, it is. It's all there. Yeah. It's all that. All yeah. the stuff we associate with modern yeah. Gothic. Yeah. Is there? Yeah. It's just. It's the first. 
Because I wouldn't like people to come to it thinking, oh, this is going to be serious political critique. This is, this is, this yeah, or that this is going to be, you know, the kind of book that make my hair stand on end yeah, in yeah, terror. You yeah, know, it's not that. Yeah, it, it's got that. It's got a dis. It's got a kind of cool parodic distance from what it's doing, which makes it a fascinating read. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, it's always and it's and that's a kind of the the thing that you always have to come back to. It's just a great read. It's a great read. It's it's just yes. it's interesting on a kind yes. of his literary history level. Yes. Yes. It's interesting in and of itself. Yes. And it's so excessive and over the top. Yes. Who doesn't love that? You know, that's what we, that. we, we look for that. The literature of excess and yeah. the literature of violence. What would we do without? Well, I mean, you know, how many murder shows are on TV, <laughs> yeah. you know? We're fascinated with, with all that, aren't we? Murder, crime. Well, we ha- did, have we mentioned crime? Because crime is central yeah. to the Gothic. Yeah, crime is, well, I mean, yeah. that's what kind of all Gothic is about. Oh. Some kind of crime. Some kind of crime. Yeah, and here the crime, crime is real crime, yeah. incest crime, murder crime. Whole, and here the, the crime is, is the usurpation, but it's also Manfred's schemes. Yeah, yeah. To in order to kind yeah. of retain control. Yeah. So yeah. it's all about crime. So yeah, I think you can see every single part of the Gothic, mm. what the Gothic would become. Yes. In its kind of embryonic form. In the little. In, 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 in this, And it's only little. It's, it's only, only a short novel. Twenty pages or something, unlike. <laughs> Some of the others, which go on and on and on. <laughs> um, so, so you can actually read it. You can read it in a sitting. Yeah, you yeah, absolutely can yeah, read it in a sitting. Yeah, yeah. And you'll be very, um, you'll be able to impress you'll all your friends. You'll be better for it. And you'll be better for it. Yes. 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 I think we have absolutely run out of time, but happy 300th birthday, Horace Walpole. Oh, yes, happy birthday, Horace. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if, if we heard him knock on the door? He's ghost. He got out of his portrait that, and that he would came be, in to just say, that would thank be you, s- Lee and Stan. That would be so a Tranto. It would not even be funny. I think I'd burst out laughing. They can laughing. say it's happening. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They can't say that it's not yeah, happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's but, nice. Happy birthday, Horace. Happy birthday, Horace. Yes. Thank you very much to Lee. Thank you, Stephanie, for asking me to such, such a wonderful conversation. It's been nice talking to you. Well, see, we we have so many conversations along these lines that we thought we'd just might as well yeah, do it in front of a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this has been another episode of From the Lighthouse. If I could ask you to please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be really, really useful for us in helping other people find um, the podcast. Um, you can send any feedback through, through Podbean or through our website at fromthelighthouse.org. If you've got any suggestions for future episodes, um, that would be fantastic too. I will see you again in a week. Bye. Bye.